Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the National Theatre. Thank you for coming in from out of the sunshine for this platform with the director, Sam Mendes, to talk about his hugely successful production of King Lear. Um, my name is Mark Leipacker. I'm an author of a book called Catching the Light, which is about Sam's working partnership with Simon Russell Beale, his King Lear, on their eight previous collaborations. So it's a genuine pleasure for me to be here asking the questions today. Um, just to say, I'm sure some of you may be watching the production this evening. I'm hoping a lot of you have already seen it, but obviously we've got Sam for a very limited time. We want him to be able to speak freely. So if there's anything that gets potentially spoiler, spoiler alert, spoiler if alert, we could yeah. just let people know, that yeah. would be great. He, um, di he dies at the end, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> she dies as well. It's terrible. It's it. We'll have a walkout now. Everyone, I don't um, so thank you for being here today. Um, Pleasure. I suppose the, the place to start is at the beginning, and we, we've talked before how, although you're doing a lot of classical theatre, you don't sort of feel obliged to tick off all of the Shakespeare canon, so <laughs> why King Lear and why now? Um, well, it, it goes right back, as you know, to the beginning of my relationship with Simon, Russell Beale. Um, uh, I've been working with him now for 25 years, 23, 24 years, terrifying, really. Um, we started my first sort of my first uh, production of Shakespeare was at the RSC in 1990, Troilus and Cressida, and uh, he played Thersites, and really it's a relationship that has grown and developed over time, and you know, if you're lucky in your working life, you find people who you really connect with, and you have a shared language, and that language gets developed almost to a shorthand, almost to a kind of telepathic uh, relationship in the rehearsal room, and it's just, for me, about pleasure, really. I mean, if anything... It's about the sheer enjoyment I, I have and the feeling of relaxation. I think when you're a director in rehearsals, you, you seek to try and achieve that point where you make all your decisions on a kind of instinct and you're, you, you lack, you lose self-consciousness and you lose um, worry and, and you, you, you start to invent. Um, and I find that very easy. Also, Simon is a magnificent leader of a company. Mm. Uh, which means there's a feeling of relaxation and fun in the rehearsal room, which I, I love. Um, so it, it, that relationship has grown, and um, through you know the younger roles, the Cites, Richard III, um, Ariel, he played astonishingly. If you watch him now, you can't believe he played Ariel, but he did. <laughs> a remarkable Ariel, actually. Um, very slow-moving Ariel, uh, but a uh, very good one. Uh, there was no flying, though, I have to say. Um, and uh, then into sort of the more mature Shakespearean roles, uh, Iago, uh, Malvolio, and also Chekhov, Uncle Vanya, um, and uh, Leparkin and the Cherry Orchard. And then into the more mature, as it were, father roles, uh, Leontes and the Winter's Tale. And I came, you know, I, he's a friend of mine, and I come to see everything he does if I possibly can. And, and uh, he's done a lot of incredible work here, particularly with Nick Heitner. But the performance that really made me convinced that Lear was, was, was very close at hand was his performance as Galileo in this theatre, directed by Howard Davis, a fantastic production. In the third act, he ages considerably, Galileo, and I, 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 he walked on stage and I thought, now, I thought, uh, it's, it's the right time. And I went into the bar afterwards, I said, A, you were wonderful, and B, let's do King Lear. And I'd always felt like uh, the role to needs physical energy. Uh, for me, the play is a very violent and a very dark play, to state the obvious. Uh, but I was very determined to have a Lear who had a kind of power, authority, 
and could exert a kind of fear um, because I felt that that was pivotal. Um, and I think for that, you need that physical force. And what, what I knew of Simon in similar roles, Richard III, which was you know, way back in the early 90s, and particularly Iago, which he did here in 97, uh, was there is that darkness in Simon and when you tap into it, that true, he, he can be scary. Mm. Um, and I think that's something that he's not called upon. He, 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 because he, as a person, is a very benign, gentle, sweet-natured presence, but there is a real darker side to him. Um, and that comes with knowledge, the knowledge of a friend and, and um, shared history and knowing him at good times and bad times, you know. And, and I felt that we could tap into that. But it's interesting that when you know someone very, very well, you almost don't talk to them at all. I mean, <laughs> he said at one point, we were doing this scene with, uh, the hovel scene with um, Edgar Kent, uh, the fool, uh, and, uh, and Lear. And I said, okay, let's go back to the top of the scene. Edgar, Fool, uh, Kent, and anyone else comes on like this. And he said, excuse me, there's only one other person in the scene, and it's King Lear, you know, it's me. But I sort of almost forget sometimes, I know it sounds ridiculous, but I almost forget he's there. And probably the person I directed the least in King Lear was Simon, in, in the sense of actually uttered the least words to him, you know. I had a similar experience. I just revived my production of Cabaret uh, in New York with Alan Cumming, who played the, ro the role of the MC. 20 years ago at the Don Mar for me, and 15 years ago in the original Broadway production of that transfer. And I, I again, had the same thing. I know him so well, I barely spoke to him. <laughs> so you, you get a kind of, you just look, or you have a half line, or you do a gesture, and they know exactly what you mean. And that's very, very pleasing. So together, we, we, we sort of tackled Lear. And we went, for example, to see Derek Jacobi play it brilliantly at the Don Mar. But So we knew it was coming. A few yes. years out, and we went and sat and discussed the production and what we liked and what we didn't like and what we felt we wanted to bring out of the play. That was actually very helpful. It was a big evening for us that we just talked about the, the elements of the play that we've seen explored a lot, which is the family drama of the play. Yes. And, a lot of, uh, and the elements we'd seen on the whole ignored or in productions that were not entirely capable of delivering, which are the, politi the political aspect of the play. And the reason that, to some degree, it's not commonly dealt with is because of scale. Mm. Um, it's easy, easier to do a family drama um, because you only have 12 people, you know, but actually it is an enormous play about the movement of nations, the movement of people, um, the, sh the breakdown of an entire nation triggered by a single human act between a father and a child. Um, and the two plays, as it were, the two aspects of the play run concurrently the breakdown of the family and the breakdown of the nation. And here we are, you know, we've made the, dis the determination to do it on the biggest stage, in a sense, Playhouse stage in, in, in London, at the National Theatre, a national play about the breakdown of a nation. And so that, in a way, informed almost every decision that followed, which is the scale of the production, the way it moved, um, using, in the case, as, as you'll see if you watch it tonight, a lot of supernumeraries. So there are 52 people in, it, 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 in the show at its greatest point. Because for me, the play is about the gradual stripping away of power and home and family, um, bit by bit, the gradual isolation um, of a leader. And, and so to be able to do that on this scale has been a pleasure. But we were, so we started talking about it, started discussing it in this theater in very specific terms. Mm. Um, and, you know, even though one doesn't want to say it feels like the culmination of our work together and blah, 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 there aren't many Shakespearean roles that you can play after Lear. 
Um, you know, as Simon grumpily says, well, I don't really want to play Prospero. So what, what's left for me? You know, he played <laughs> false stuff on television, you know. And uh, so I think he's, he's feeling like, you know, the last night of Lear will be, a, will be a slightly scary moment for him. Right. You've talked before about how uh, it's always important for a director to have a secret, uh, something they know about the play that nobody else knows. Is that for you the, the stripping away and the isolation of the character, or are you prepared to reveal to <laughs> us today what, what, what for you is your secret well, way into Lear, or what was it? I, I think it's not, and you paraphrase it slightly, it's secret that, that, uh, that you have that you feel is your own. It doesn't mean that nobody else knows it, because right. feel, that feels slightly conceited as like, you know, I'm the only person who knows this about the play, <laughs> and I'm going to reveal it to you. <clears throat> which, is, which is slightly different to that feeling of a personal connection right. with a particular a particular way in. It's, it's like a sort of um, a current that runs straight to you. And it can be quite small things. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's a, a larger conceptual framework. And sometimes it's a small, a small connection. And I suppose my... <clears throat> this is not really a secret, but my, my chief interest, and I think Simon's m m matched up, which is that I've always felt that when Lear says, I'm a man more sinned against than sinning, <clears throat> that he's talking bullshit. Um, in other words, that he is a self-piteous uh, and a, 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 an entirely, um, that he's not misunderstood, that he is a bad man and has done terrible things. Mm. And that one of the reasons why it topples so quickly at the beginning is that he's a man who has not heard the word no for 25 years. So when his own child says it, he simply cannot cope with it. That is also married to an awareness, I think, in the character that he is mentally disintegrating. Um, I think it may be a, a subconscious awareness, but nevertheless, he is beginning to be aware that things aren't right, which is why he chooses to give over his kingdom. So those two things. But I, I've always felt there's a sort of wash of sentimentality. There's a danger of uh, the wronged man being presented in the first scene. Is it possible to ask an audience to sympathize with a man who has done terrible things? Now, there are things that Lear does in this play. He's a man who's killed, and he's a man who, who has around him an entourage of very violent personal, a very violent personal army, a Stasi, if you like. Uh, in the play, he talks about his 100 nights, and that becomes a big issue in the first half of the play, whether Goneril and Regan will allow him his entourage of knights. But Goneril says, <coughs> they hold our lives at mercy. Goneril says, these are dangerous men. They are going to kill us if we leave them in the house. They have killed other people. Lear has killed other people. So what you get is a, is a, is a world built on fear and danger. Um, and so when he goes mad, his only means of communication is violence. You know, he, he says, even in the most... Um, in a sense, romantic scene in the play, the most beautiful, the most tender, which is the scene, well, one of the most tender, which is the scene between him and Gloucester when he recognizes the blinded Gloucester in Dover and he himself has gone mad. He says, kill, 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 kill. That is a line in from that scene. He, 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 uh, he uses the language of violence throughout the play and the, and the currency of the society that he governs is violence. The blinding of Gloucester is not accidental. You know, that is how power is exerted in this world. So for him, in his madness, to turn round 
when he believes the fool is playing Regan in his, his fantasy trial of his own daughters and club him to death with an iron bar, which is what he does in this production. Spoiler, Spoiler alert. Yeah. Um, <coughs> or maybe he doesn't. I don't know. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, is, is only because that is, the, that is his currency, his main his, his means of communication. It's non-verbal. He communicates through people. It's very interesting to me in the scene, in one, at one scene three, when he's, he's with Goneril, that he arrives with the knights. There's a lot of noise when they arrive. But then he runs out very quickly, runs out of things to say to them. They are his staff. They are his employees. And he says, where's my fool? Where's my fool? He asks three or four times. And it's because the fool is his bridge between him, who he really is, and the people under his employ. And when he said goodbye to his daughters, there's nobody left that, un that can talk to him. Um, he's immediately exposed, immediately isolated as a leader. So those things for me were the way into the play, was, was this, I felt, our thoughts, our particular insights into the violence of, his, of this particular society, a way of rediscovering the violence in the play so it was shocking. Um, because I think it is, you know. Uh, and, uh, you know, this is a play that ends with uh, Goneril dead, Regan dead, Cordelia dead, Lear dead, Gloucester dead, Edmund dead. I mean, every major character, and savagely, too, in many mm. cases. And, you know, uh, uh, he carries on the daughter of his, uh, excuse me, the dead body of his daughter. And sometimes it's easy to forget that this is a woman who has been killed in a jail cell by soldiers and probably raped, too. I mean, uh, so she can't, you know, she's the rope marks around her neck. And it, it, it is an um, extraordinary fifth act of this play, fighting over the spoils of war in hell, you know, is what it feels like. It, it's a really nihilistic, bleak play. And yet, there's something pure, for me, there was something purifying about doing it. There was something exhilarating about going to that extreme and pushing it as far as we could. And I really felt that the company were capable of doing that, and the, comp the company were willing to go there and excited. Mm. So that was, that was great. It was a great, it was a, I mean, I have to say, it was a great experience. I, I loved doing the play. Well, let's talk a little bit about your, your working methodology and working with that company and, and the way you arrange a rehearsal room in a circle, the way that you have the company there for the duration of the rehearsal process and how you really begin to sort of push and pull at scenes and mm. 3D literary criticism <laughs> and, and, and then how you, you sort of compute and arrange your production based on that. What do you get out of your working process? How do you work with your actors? How does it work in the rehearsal room? It, it, it's interesting. When I was a student, I, I didn't have a methodology. And, I, and, I, and as a young director, I, I struggled. And, and I, in, that re, in that regard, I, I didn't have a way to approach a play that was consistent, I felt. And so I remember reading a lot of books about directing and thinking, well, try that, I'll try this. And, and like anything, it's, it's trial and error. And it emerged gradually out of what I enjoy in a rehearsal room and what I found the, the best way was to explore something with the people that you're working with. You know, you have 20 other imaginations in the room with you as a director, and you're an idiot if you don't use those imaginations. And there are some incredibly intelligent people in the room with you who see it with every, with, every, with every bit as much insight as you do. You know, your job is editorial to a degree. But for me, it actually emerged out of Othello here. That was the first time I worked with a lot of people in the room. I put out a lot of rugs, and I thought, I'm going to try just keeping the company together and experimenting with, with scenes. Um, 
playing games sometimes. Sometimes it will be simple things like I'll switch the roles in a scene, I'll get... I mean, I remember a, a fantastic day of Othello where Claire Skinner, who was playing Desdemona, played Othello, and David Harewood played Desdemona. And it was revelatory to both of them, and it helped that, you know... So that, that's just a very simple idea. Um, sometimes it will be... Um, I will involve the group a lot, you know, in terms of... Uh, in, in, in this production, the full company, the, act, the, the kind of core of 21, became the Knights for six weeks of rehearsals until the knights arrived. But by the time the knights actually arrived, the supernumeraries, we had experimented with any number of different ways of using them because the company had, had become that group. It's just a way of, of uh, exploring the play. And sometimes it can be silly. If you feel the, the mood getting too dark or too dry, perhaps too academic, then, then you can play something that's a little... Uh, that you can unlock a scene through a physical uh, trick. So. I remember a rehearsal Twelfth Night in which um, we played a scene as if they were rowing a boat across a lake. And I know it sounds stupid, but it, it released the scene physically. They didn't think about text anymore. Uh, they related to each other completely accurately with, because there were two people sitting next to each other and they had to row at the same time. And the teamwork of the scene and the physical life of the scene, uh, it, came, it, it, it came to life. Uh, Sometimes you will find that uh, you know you 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 set a scene around a dinner table, for example, for, for no reason except that you have a feeling that the dynamics will be better revealed of the family around the dinner table, uh, and someone loses their temper. You don't want them to wave their hands, so you give them knife and fork. I mean, you'll go down a very specific route. Now, in the case of this play, the first scene we spent a lot of time, and right up to very late in the day, there were different versions. I mean, completely different versions of the first scene. One of them, and the, one of the most interesting, was a dinner scene between Lear and the whole family in which, on a predetermined cue, the men stood up and backed off, leaving the women sitting there, unaware. I mean, like a trick, they're playing on the women, a joke. And Lear said, yeah, I've got a little thing. I, we've, we've all arranged this, the men, uh, because we know there's going to be a, a big present-giving ceremony. I'm going to give you my nation. I'm going to give you a third each. Now... You know, you play along with my game and tell me how much you love me. Hmm. And the men were all in on it, drinking, and it was late, and it was, it, it was almost as if it was the end of a dinner party. And it was sinister. It was a male-dominated society. It was unfair on the women. It was exposing. And it worked very interestingly. But then there was this other version of the scene, which is this version that you'll see tonight, which was completely different. It was a very public scene. It was very exposing. It was very politically oriented. The, 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 the presence of the soldiers was very... Uh, made, it, made it both public and, uh, and threatening. It, it, was it was clear that if the wrong things were said, there was not a comfortable environment in which to be yourself. <laughs> mm. it, was, uh, it, it, it increased the level of tension. So anyway, that's a good example. But there were, very, there were many versions of that scene. And of course, there are, also, there are things that happen in the circle that you can never bring onto a bigger stage. It's much easier, the journey from the circle to full production at the Donmar is, is almost straight on stage. I mm. mean, you know, we did the whole, the whole of Twelfth Night in the circle and we just moved it onto the stage. I mean, I kept everyone in the room until about three days from the end um, and only then did little specific adjustments. Uh, but for me, it's just a way of... Uh, I've also freeing myself from sometimes getting stuck uh, with 
one or two uh, ideas and repeating myself. I mean, I think that, you know, it's very difficult to... You, you do find yourself uh, repeating certain things, and, and there, are, there are things that I use in this production that I've used before. You know, you're, you probably would notice the long table from the trial scene in The Winter's Tale. Even the behind us is very similar, or the wheat field from a production of As You Like It, or whatever. Th th there are things that you find yourself returning to. But that's also because Shakespeare returns to them as well, and, and there, are, there are echoes within his work that are actually quite enjoyable to explore. Um, so that's, that's the working method. It, it's come out of trial and error, and it's very eccentric, and I wouldn't recommend it to anyone else, really. I, I don't <laughs> think I write a book and say, this is the way you need to rehearse. It, it's very personal, and I think it's a lot of it's about losing self-consciousness, you know, and being able to talk in a way... The other thing that happens, which I think is very important, is that actors play and lose self-consciousness. There's a sort of throwing yourself into the water. It's a little scary the first time, but once you've got through it, you made a fool of yourself once, it's sort of, you lose self-consciousness as performers as well. Um, and people are willing to try things and be free with things that, because they know that there's no right or wrong. There's no entrance, there's no exit, there's no audience because you, you know, you're not facing that way. You're facing it any way you face. You know? And I try to move so that they don't de perform towards me. Yes. So I move, you know, dot around the circle, um, make it comfortable. People are sitting on floors. Some people are sitting in chairs. Some people have armchairs. I try and keep them moving as well so that people don't always go back to the same place. Um, sometimes you'll start a scene just by sitting on the floor and talking the scene to each other. And then, you know, you'll have people come together and do a closer version, expanded version. And, and then you grow out of that. And then sometimes you get it right the first time. I mean, literally, you, and you have to recognize when something special has happened. You'll experiment with other things, but you'll always have that first version of the scene in your head. Um, and there's a line from Polonius in Hamlet. He says, and I've quoted this to you before, but he says, we shall, by indirections, find directions out. And that's a great ex uh, descriptive line about my rehearsal process. Mm -hmm. You know, If you go down enough blind alleys, you might find the one that leads somewhere. It also sounds like a way of not sticking to any preconceived notions about the play. And uh, I suppose a question to follow on from that then is, how much do you pre-plan? And can you think of an example from the rehearsal room where an actor did something that blew your preconception out of the water and you think, oh, it's that, let's use that in the, in the production? Oh, I think that happens every day, actually. Right. And I felt like sometimes you do... F well, the answer to the first part of the question is you uh, have to plan on a bigger stage. I've made the mistake of, being, of trying to remain free on a big stage. And what happens is you don't make enough design decisions because you have to make them relatively early. So this was a very rare occasion in recent years when I've actually shown the model to the cast on the first day. Even though it had none of the details on it, it just had the, the panels. It had a few sketches. Anthony Ward, who's a wonderful designer, had done a few sketches um, of how it could be used. Um, and so, but there was obviously already a kind of some vocabulary at play. Normally, I, I would literally not show a model and for three or four weeks. Um, and there have been times when I've never shown, I've not shown a model at all because there hasn't been a model. Mm. Um, at the Donmar with Twelfth Night and Uncle Vanya, I didn't have a model. We just, we just designed it as we went along, really. Um, and Anthony Ward reacted to what we'd done very brilliantly. But in the case of um, Twelfth Night, it was just candles. There was nothing else on stage for most of the time. Um, and a couple of chairs, you know. So, uh, but here you have to, you know, it's the Olivier, uh, and actually it's developed into quite a 
you know, a toolkit. I mean, we've got a revolve, a working revolve. The bit I'm sitting on here is a lift that goes up and down. We have walls flying in and out, and, uh, and often all of those things happening at the same time. But those things developed in rehearsal as we began to realize how we wanted to use the toolkit to move people and to let the production flow from one scene to another, which again is complicated when you also like to work, as I do, with a naturalistic route in every scene. In other words, you know, somewhere to sit, stand, some sense of architecture, even if it's an interest, specific entrance. I mean, the play itself, Lear, is about the gradual falling away of people's domestic framework, the greatest play about homelessness. But for that, you need to render a home so you can then see it lost. If you do it on an empty stage, it's rather unsatisfying, in a big stage, it's rather unsatisfying, you know, because these homes, whether they be Goneril's or, you know, Gloucester's Palace, Lear's Palace, <coughs> uh, gradually uh, diminish to uh, the hovel, and in this case, a sort of builder's hut, uh, and then emptiness the, for the storm, and then a kind of, uh, uh, you know, open, uh, a, a romantic uh, space, which is which is the, the the wheat fields in Dover, and then back into an enclosed space again for the last act. So, it was very important to me that we had a way of rendering, you know, a real house and Gloucester's study and you know those places. And that that means moving furniture and being able to move a lot of people across a big stage, which in the Olivier is different. It's difficult because you know the wings are a long way away. Um, uh, you know, you can't just have someone just pop on and be on center stage. It's a journey to get to center stage. So we also created this thing here, this uh, passerelle, this walkway that goes straight up the central aisle. And, uh, and, and we use it a lot. Mm. I, I could ch chat to Sam for ages, but it seems rather unfair to hog him all to myself. So we're going to bring the house lights up a little bit now. And if anybody's got any questions for Sam, just to say we have no roving mics. So do please speak up. And I'll probably repeat the question so that everybody can hear it. So if anybody's got a question for Sam, hello, yes. Question about the difference between theatre and film rehearsals and do I use that? Uh, I don't use the same rehearsal technique in film at all. It's quite different. I do rehearse. I mean, I've rehearsed at every film. Um, in fact, I think I'm responsible for the first read-through ever of a Bond script. <laughs> <laughs> I said, so I guess, I guess you... I think that deserves a round of applause. <laughs> so I said, I guess you do this every time. They're like, no, we've never done it before. <laughs> Albert Finney, Ben Whishaw, you know, Ben Whishaw, Judy Dench. So it was, you know, a lot of these... I mean, what's wonderful about film is those guys never... If you don't do a read-through or a couple of days' rehearsals, they never meet each other at all because, you know, Albert's not in the same part as Ben and Ben's not in the same bit as Rafe or whatever. So that, that's, been, that's great. But for me, film is about, you know, you, you're very dangerous rehearsing film because, you know, something like Bond, for example, it's a six-month shooting process. You could, you know, rehearse in October, but you're not shooting a scene until April. And, you know, you've got someone trying to remember what they did five months ago. It's very confusing. I think the thing about rehearsing film is you want to fill the actors up with as much excitement, fill the gas tank with gas, but don't turn the ignition. So they come with a variety of ideas, but they, 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 I don't want them to do it. So I don't mark it out on the floor, I don't actually rehearse it, I just sit around a table and we talk and talk and talk. Um, also, I want them to understand, I want them to, to know how I'm going to shoot it, you know. 
this is how I'm going to stage the scene. This is probably where it's going to be. I might show them some location photographs so they've got in their head the real location. You know, they talk about how they, they're dressed, what time of the day it is, basic facts about scenes. This is what you want from the scenes, where you've come from. Remember, this has to link up with this bit later. Just clarity, really. And then ideas and thoughts. It would be great. We could try it like this, try it like that, but don't do it yet. So that's really my, my way of rehearsing film. Yes, over there. What do I find more professionally satisfying, film or theatre? Personally. Well, I, I, I think that I'm happiest when I'm either in rehearsal for a play or editing a movie. I think those are the times when you feel most creative. Um, I, I'm not a huge fan of putting a play on stage. I find the technical, you know, I, I, I'm not a, uh, I don't love technical rehearsals. And I think once you've started performing it, you've given it to the audience. And so, yes, you make a lot of, I work a lot in previews and make a lot of changes. But nevertheless, you feel like you're saying goodbye to it. Um, film, when you're in the cutting room, you have, abs you have an incredible amount of control. Uh, and I do believe, and I've said this before, that, that theatre is the actor's medium primarily and the writer's medium. Uh, and that uh, the film is the director's medium. I mean, I think if a film is bad, you can generally blame the director, you know. And, uh, uh, and I think you do have much, much more control. I mean, you can tell an audience to look at someone's fingertip, you know, on, on film, as long as you shot it. Um, and that's that wonderful feeling of rhythm, being able to create something, the actual fabric of the way something moves, the way it breathes in and breathes out. The rhythm of something is under your control as a film director. Your job as a theatre director is to understand the rhythm that the writer has created, and that's a different thing entirely. Um, and when you're really working, you, you begin to feel the rhythm of the play, but it's not your rhythm, it's, it's, it's an interpretation of somebody else's. You know? so, but I, I find them both equally satisfying. Generally speaking, when I've done a movie, I want to go back into a rehearsal room. And when I've done a play, I, I can't wait to do a movie again. So I'm lucky to be able to do both, really. <laughs> right at the front. Yeah, what, what was your experience of uh, the Blue Room? <laughs> experience of the Blue Room. Uh, the Blue Room, for those who don't know, was an adaptation written by David Hare of an Arthur Schnitzler play called La, La Ronde, which uh, was uh, two people playing ten roles, uh, Nicole Kidman and Ian Glenn, 1998. So again, a long time ago. But um, uh, the experience of rehearsing it was very, very pleasurable. It was really good fun. It's like when, you, when you're so few of you in a rehearsal room and you've got someone like Nicole who at that point a little bit like Bambi, was sort of beginning to learn how to, you know, take... She just took off visibly in front of us as she did the play. Um, and she sort of uh, began to trust herself as an actor. And I think she herself would, would admit that that was a, a, a turning point for her, a sense of empowerment. Um, so it was huge fun, and it was a little bit like sort of kids playing around in the room, you know, because when you've got two people playing five five roles each, there's a sort of set feeling of almost dress-up about it, you know what I mean? It's just like, it, it's fun. it was play. Um, then when it opened, it went ballistic. Uh, in case you didn't know, uh, Nicole briefly took off her clothes, or rather pulled on her clothes. She stood up naked and pulled on her knickers. You didn't see anything, really. But reading about it in the press, it was like she was cavorting naked for 25 <laughs> minutes. I mean, you, 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 it was completely out of proportion with what was actually there. And that rather took over. But the thing itself, what I like to remember, was a very pleasurable and was a happy time. I've got my back to people over here. Oh, yes, hand directly up there. Lady in the pink. Um, there's a real physicality to your work. And I'm wondering, I've heard a rumor that you were quite a cricketer. 
Is there any link between my cricket? Is there any, any, any link between cricket and your theatre? None theater? whatsoever, no. <laughs> uh, I mean, really, there's absolutely none. And I, I, I always think, God, I'm not nearly physical enough. You know, I look at McBurney, who I think is a genius, you know, and I think, well, yeah, that's how theatre should be. You know, in my production, we just stand around talking the whole time. You know, so I, thank you very much for saying it's, it's physical, but I, I, I worry a lot about, <laughs> about, you know, I think also when, when, uh, when someone's pr truly inhabiting a role, they do, they do change, shift their physicality, and I think that that's true of a lot of performances in this. I think particularly Simon, actually, who, who changes the way he moves as, he, as the disease, the dementia, takes hold. Uh, his body shifts, and he seems to diminish in size, which is something I've never seen him do before, and, uh, and I think is one of the things I love most about his performance. Hello, yes. <laughs> that was a question. Have I ever directed in a foreign language, for example, Portuguese? I take it you're uh, Portuguese. Uh, no, I've never directed in that. I, I'm very bad in translation. I, I've done enough uh, uh, press tours of movies to know that I'm not very good with a translator next to me. I like the feeling of saying things and moving. I like the rhythm of being able to, you know, have dialogue with an actor and, and things happen quick. You know what I mean? It's like you, you put someone between you and you, you speak and then you wait. Uh, 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 and you, you, are they understanding it? You know, it's a little bit like that scene in Lost in Translation, you know, where the guy speaks for five minutes and then, and then the translation, he says, just more intensity. <laughs> that's it, that's all he said. Yeah, he just said more That's I always feel like, are they really hearing the nuances of what I'm suggesting? And then I can't judge whether what they're doing is <laughs> has any nuance. So I, I've always struggled and never wanted to. Um, what was the other question? Oscar Wilde. I, I, I would do it if Simon Russell Beale were to play Lady Brackmore, but I believe... <laughs> uh, I, 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 I believe someone else has already had that idea, so maybe... Not. Over on this wing, anybody here? Yes. Yes. Well, you've answered... To a degree, your own question there. I think that, that it's a question about about uh, you know Edgar and and his madness and trying to find a way in that makes sense. I mean, I think that I've always felt you know Edgar's. Look, I think the first appearance of a character in a in a play like L Lear, particularly in a later plays, he demands the audience picks up a story right from the middle. You know, I mean, Leontes within minutes of meeting Leontes in Winter's Tale, he is convinced his wife's having an affair with his best friend and you the audience have to and it's the most difficult thing for a director and you spend you spend hours and hours days and days on the first scene to try and calibrate it so that it makes sense so there's a way in so the audience just doesn't go huh you know and i think the first entrance of a character is absolutely pivotal in, in almost all cases and i think edgar's is no different we had a lot we spent a lot of time on that first scene and there's only three or four he only says three or four lines um, and I had a, uh, because um, I felt like there needed to be someone who, in this violent society, was basically a dropout, a pacifist, uh, someone who just fell through the cracks, who his father felt was a waste of time, and, you know, he was about to overlook, on behalf of his bastard son, Edmund, uh, who was much more 
of a yes man, much more put together, much more uh, appropriate and well-behaved. And Edgar was a bit of a loser, frankly, in his father's eyes. And that's what we went for. And sort of within that, there was some sense that he, he could stand outside. He was, a, he was a rich kid. We hadn't been outside of the house much. So he talks about joining the poor. Um, and and that, that felt like a more fertile uh, ground to, to create his madness, his fake madness. So yeah, I mean, that, that's all there, I think. And Tom is brilliant, very compelling and wonderful and heartbreaking, I think, in the role. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for all of your questions, but we have to clear the stage so that you can actually watch King Lear later. Um, so thank you very much for your time. If you wouldn't mind joining me in thanking Sam Mendes. Thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you.